Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. All persons wishing to listen to the opinions of the Honorable Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for this podcast is now started. Hello, welcome to the inaugural podcast of SCOTUS Speaks. I'm your host, James. As an avid fan of the Supreme Court, I read many of the court's opinions. I want everyone to hear what the court has decided in their own words. This week I will be reading Obergefell, but first I think a very short background is necessary to give some context. Obergefell v. Hodges is known as the case that granted marriage equality to two persons of the same sex. I hope when you listen to this opinion, you will discover that this case is much more. Now, without further ado, I will read the majority opinion of Justice Kennedy. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons, within a lawful realm, to define and express their identity. The petitioners in these cases seek to find that liberty by marrying someone of the same sex and having their marriages deemed lawful on the same terms and conditions as marriages between persons of the opposite sex. These cases come from Michigan, Kentucky, Ohio, and Tennessee, states that define marriage as a union between one man and one woman. The petitioners are 14 same-sex couples and two men whose same-sex partners are deceased. The respondents are state officials responsible for enforcing the laws in question. The petitioners claim that the respondents violate the 14th Amendment by denying them the right to marry or have their marriages lawfully performed in another state, given full recognition. Petitioners filed these suits in the United States District Courts in their home states. Each district court rules in their favor. The respondents appeal the decisions against them to United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. They consolidated the cases and reversed the judgments of the district courts. The Court of Appeals held that a state has no constitutional obligation to license same-sex marriages or to recognize same-sex marriages performed out of state. The petitioner sought certoriari. The court granted review limited to two questions. The first, presented by the cases from Michigan and Kentucky, is whether the 14th Amendment requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex. The second, presented by the cases from Ohio, Tennessee, and again Kentucky, is whether the 14th Amendment requires a state to recognize a same-sex marriage licensed and performed in a state which does grant that right. Before addressing the principles and precedents that govern these cases, it is appropriate to note the history of the subject now before the court. From their beginning to their most recent page, the annals of human history reveal the transcendent importance of marriage. The lifelong union of a man and a woman always has promised nobility and dignity to all persons, without regard to their station in life. Marriage is sacred to those who live by their religions and offers unique fulfillment to those who find meaning in the secular realm. Its dynamic allows two people to find a life that could not be found alone, for a marriage becomes greater than just the two persons. Rising from the most basic human needs, marriage is essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations. The centrality of marriage to the human condition makes it unsurprising that the institution has existed for millennia and across civilizations. Since the dawn of history, marriage has transformed strangers into relatives, binding families and societies together. Confucius taught that marriage lies at the foundation of government. The wisdom was echoed centuries later and half a world away by Cicero, who wrote, The first bond of society is marriage, next children, and then family. There are untold references to the beauty of marriage in religious and philosophical texts spanning time, cultures, and faiths, as well as in art and literature in all their forms. It is fair and necessary to say these references were based on the understanding that marriage is a union between two persons of the opposite sex. That history is the beginning of these cases. The respondents say it should be the end as well. 
To them, it would demean a timeless institution if the concept and lawful status of marriage were extended to two persons of the same sex. Marriage, in their view, is by its nature a gender-differentiated union of a man and a woman. This view long has been held and continues to be held in good faith by reasonable and sincere people here and throughout the world. The petitioners acknowledge this history but contend that these cases cannot end there. Were their intent to demean the revered idea and reality of marriage, the petitioners' claims would be of a different order. This, they say, is their whole point. Far from seeking to devalue marriage, the petitioners seek it for themselves because of their respect and need for its privileges and responsibilities, and their immutable nature dictates that same-sex marriage is their only real path to this profound commitment. Recounting the circumstances of three of these cases illustrates the urgency of the petitioners' cause from their perspective. Petitioner James Obergefell, a plaintiff in the Ohio case, met John Arthur over two decades ago. They fell in love and started a life together, establishing a lasting, committed relation. In 2011, however, Arthur was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. This debilitating disease is progressive, with no known cure. Two years ago, Obergefell and Arthur decided to commit to one another, resolving to marry before Arthur died. To fulfill their mutual promise, they traveled from Ohio to Maryland, where same-sex marriage was legal. It was difficult for Arthur to move, and so the couple were wed inside a medical transport plane as it remained on the tarmac in Baltimore. Three months later, Arthur died. Ohio law does not permit Obergefell to be listed as the surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. By statute, they must remain strangers even in death, a state-imposed separation Obergefell deems hurtful for the rest of time. He brought suit to be shown as the surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. April DeBoer and Jane Rouse are co-plaintiffs in the case from Michigan. They celebrated a commitment ceremony to honor their permanent relation in 2007. They both work as nurses. DeBoer in a neonatal unit and Rouse in an emergency unit. In 2009, DeBoer and Rouse fostered and then adopted a baby boy. Later that same year, they welcomed another son into their family. The new baby boy, born prematurely and abandoned by his biological mother, required around-the-clock care. The next year, a baby girl with special needs joined their family. Michigan, however, permits only opposite-sex married couples or single individuals to adopt, so each child can have only one woman as his or her legal parent. If an emergency were to arise, schools and hospitals may treat the three children as if they had only one parent. And, were tragedy to befall either DeBoer or Rouse, the other would have no legal rights over the children she had not been permitted to adopt. This couple seeks relief from the continuing uncertainty their unmarried status creates in their lives. Army Reserve Sergeant First Clerk Ijdiko and his partner Thomas Castora, co-plaintiffs in the Tennessee case, fell in love. In 2011, Deco received orders to deploy to Afghanistan. Before leaving, he and Kostura married in New York. A week later, Deco began his deployment, which lasted for almost a year. When he returned, the two settled in Tennessee, where Deco worked full-time for the Army Reserve. Their lawful marriage is stripped from them whenever they reside in Tennessee, returning and disappearing as they travel across state lines. Deco, who served his nation to preserve the freedom the Constitution protects, must endure a substantial burden. The cases now before the court involve other petitioners as well, each with their own experiences. Their stories reveal that they seek not to degenerate marriage but rather to live their lives, or honour their spouse's memory joined by its bond. The age and origins of marriage confirm its centrality, but it has not stood in isolation from developments in law and society. The history of marriage is one both for continuity and change. That institution, even as confined to opposite-sex relations, has evolved over time. For example, marriage was once viewed as an arrangement by the couple's parents based on political, religious, and financial concerns. But by the time of the nation's founding, it was understood to be a voluntary contract between a man and a woman. 
As the role and status of women changed, the institution further evolved. Under the centuries-old doctrine of coverture, a married man and woman were treated by the state as a single, male-dominated legal entity. As women gained legal, political, and property rights, and as society began to understand that women have their own equal dignity, the law of coverture was abandoned. These and other developments in the institution of marriage were over the past centuries were not mere superficial changes. Rather, they worked deep transformations in its structure, affecting aspects of marriage long viewed by many as essential. These new insights have strengthened, not weakened, the institution of marriage. Indeed, changed understandings of marriage are characteristics of a nation where new dimensions of freedom become apparent to new generations, often through perspectives that begin in pleas or protests and then are considered in the political sphere and the judicial process. This dynamic can be seen in the nation's experience with the rights of gays and lesbians. Until the mid-20th century, same-sex intimacy long had been condemned as immoral by the state itself in most Western nations, a belief often embodied in criminal law. For this reason, among others, many persons did not deem homosexuals to have dignity in their own distinct identity. A truthful declaration by same-sex couples of what was in their hearts had to remain unspoken. Even when a greater awareness of the humanity and integrity of homosexual persons came in the period after World War II, the argument that gays and lesbians had a just claim to dignity was in conflict with both law and widespread social conventions. Same-sex intimacy remained a crime in many states. Gays and lesbians were prohibited from most military employment, barred from military service, excluded under immigration laws, targeted by police, and burdened in their rights to associate. For much of the 20th century, moreover, homosexuality was treated as an illness, when the American Psychiatric Association published the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 1952, homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder, a position adhered to until 1973. Only in more recent years have psychiatrists and others recognized that sexual orientation is both a normal expression of human sexuality and immutable. In the late 20th century, following substantial cultural and political developments, same-sex couples began to lead more open and public lives and to establish families. This development was followed by quite extensive discussion of the issue in both government and private sectors and by a shift in public attitudes towards greater tolerance. As a result, questions about rights of gays and lesbians soon reached the courts, where the issue could be discussed in the formal discourse of the law. This court first gave detailed consideration to the legal status of homosexuals in Bowers v. Hardwick. There, it upheld the constitutionality of a Georgia law deemed to criminalize certain homosexual acts. Ten years later, in Rummer v. Evans, the court invalidated an amendment to the Colorado's constitution that sought to foreclose any branch or political subdivision of the state from protecting persons against discrimination based on sexual orientation. Then, in 2003, the court overruled Bowers, holding that laws making same-sex intimacy a crime demean the lives of homosexual persons. Against this background, the legal question of same-sex marriage arose. In 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court held Hawaii's law restricting marriage to opposite-sex couples constituted a classification on the basis of sex and was therefore subject to strict scrutiny under the Hawaii Constitution. Although this decision did not mandate that same-sex marriage be allowed, some states were concerned by its implications and reaffirmed in their laws that marriage is defined as a union between opposite-sex partners. So, too, in 1996, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, defining marriage for all federal law purposes as only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. The new widespread discussion of the subject led other states to a different conclusion. In 2003, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts held the state's constitution guaranteed same-sex couples the right to marry. After that ruling, some additional states granted marriage rights to same-sex couples, 
either through judicial or legislative processes. Two terms ago, in United States v. Windsor, this court invalidated DOMA to the extent it barred the federal government from treating same-sex marriages as valid even when they were lawful in the state where they were licensed. DOMA, the court held, impermissibly disparaged those same-sex couples who wanted to affirm their commitment to one another before their children, their family, their friends, and their community. Numerous cases about same-sex marriage have reached the United States Courts of Appeals in recent years. In accordance with judicial duty to base their decisions on principled reasons and neutral discussions, without scornful or disparaging commentary, courts have written a substantial body of law considering all sides of these issues. That case law helps to explain and formulate the underlying principles this court now must consider. With the exception of the opinion here under review and one other, the Courts of Appeals have held that excluding same-sex couples from marriage violates the Constitution. There also have been many thoughtful district court decisions addressing same-sex marriage and most of them, too, have concluded same-sex couples must be allowed to marry. In addition, the highest courts of many states have contributed to this ongoing dialogue and decisions interpreting their own state constitutions. After years of litigation, legislation, referenda and the discussions that have attended these public acts, the states are now divided on the issue of same-sex marriage. Under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. The fundamental liberties protected by this clause include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. In addition, these liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. The identification and protection of fundamental rights is an enduring part of the judicial duty to interpret the Constitution. That responsibility, however, has not been reduced to any formula. Rather, it requires courts to exercise reasoned judgment in identifying interests of the person so fundamental that the state must accord them its respect. That process is guided by many of the same considerations relevant to analysis of other constitutional provisions that set forth broad principles rather than specific requirements. History and tradition guide and discipline this inquiry but do not set its outer boundaries. That method respects our history and learns from it without allowing the past alone to rule the present. The nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times. The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights in the 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all its dimensions. And so they entrusted to future generations a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections and they receive legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. Applying these established tenets, the court has long held that the right to marry is protected by the Constitution. In Loving v. Virginia, which invalidated bans on interracial unions, a unanimous court held marriage is one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. The court reaffirmed that holding in Zablocki v. Redhale, which held the right to marry was burdened by a law prohibiting fathers who were behind on child support from marrying. The court again applied this principle in turn to be safely, which held the right to marry was abridged by regulations limiting the privilege of prison inmates to marry. Over time and in other contexts, the court has reiterated that the right to marry is fundamental under the due process clause. It cannot be denied that this court's cases describing the right to marry presumed a relationship involving opposite-sex partners. The court, like many institutions, has made assumptions defined by the world and the time of which it is part. This was evident in Baker v. Nelson, a one-line summary of the decision issued in 1972 holding the exclusion of same-sex couples from marriage did not present a substantial federal question. Still, there are other more instructive precedents. This court's cases have expressed constitutional principles of broader reach. 
In defining the right to marry, these cases have identified essential attributes of the right based in history, tradition, and other constitutional liberties inherent in this intimate bond, and in assessing whether the force and rationale of its cases apply to same-sex couples. The court must respect the basic reasons why the right to marry has been long protected. This analysis compels the conclusion that same-sex couples may exercise the right to marry. The four principles and traditions to be discussed demonstrate that the reasons marriage is fundamental under the Constitution apply with equal force to same-sex couples. A first premise of the court's relevant precedence is that the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. This abiding connection between marriage and liberty is why loving and validated interracial marriage bans onto the Due Process Clause. Like choices concerning contraception, family relations, procreation and charring, all of which are protected by the Constitution, decisions concerning marriage are among the most intimate that an individual can make. Indeed, the Court has noted it would be contradictory to recognize a right of privacy with respect to other matters of family life and not with respect to the decision to enter the relationship that is the foundation of the family in our society. Choices about marriage shape an individual's destiny. As the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts has explained, because it fulfills yearnings for security, safe haven, and connection that express our common humanity, civil marriage is an esteemed institution, and the decision whether and whom to marry is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. The nature of marriage is that, through its enduring bond, two persons, together, can find other freedoms such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. This is true for all persons, whatever their sexual orientation. There is a dignity in the bond between two men or two women who seek to marry and in their autonomy to make such profound choices. A second principle in this course jurisprudence is that the right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union unlike any other in its importance to the committed individuals. This point was central to Griswold v. Connecticut, which held the Constitution protects the right of married couples to use contraception. Suggesting that marriage is a right older than the Bill of Rights, Griswold described marriage this way. Marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faiths, a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects, yet it is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. And in Turner, the court again acknowledged the intimate association protected by this right, holding prisoners could not be denied the right to marry because their committed relationships satisfy the basic reasons why marriage is a fundamental right. The right to marry thus dignifies couples who wish to define themselves by their commitment to each other. Marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. It offers the hope of companionship and an understanding and assurance that while both still live, there will be someone to care for the other. As this court held in Lawrence, same-sex couples have the same right as opposite-sex couples to enjoy intimate association. Lawrence invalidated laws that made same-sex intimacy a criminal act. And it acknowledged that when sexuality finds overt expression in intimate conduct with another person, the conduct can be but one element in a personal bond that is more enduring. But while Lawrence confirmed a dimension of freedom that allows individuals to engage in intimate association without criminal liability, it does not follow that the freedom stops there. Outlaw to outcast may be a step forward, but it does not achieve the full purpose of liberty. A third basis for protecting the right to marry is that it safeguards children and families and thus draws meaning from the related rights of childbearing, procreation, and education. The court has recognized these contentions by describing the varied rights as a unified whole. The right to marry, establish a home, and bring children is a central part of the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause. Under the laws of the several states, some of the marriage's protections for children and families are material, but marriage also confers more profound beliefs. By giving recognition and legal structure to their parents' relationship, 
Marriage allows children to understand the integrity and closeness of their own family and its concord with other families in their community and in their daily lives. Marriage also affords the permanency and stability important to children's best interests. As all parties agree, many same-sex couples provide loving and nurturing homes to their children, whether biological or adopted, and hundreds of thousands of children are presently being raised by such couples. Most states have allowed gays and lesbians to adopt, either as individuals or as couples, and many adopted and fostered children have same-sex parents. This provides powerful confirmation from the law itself that gays and lesbians can create loving, supportive families. Excluding same-sex couples from marriage thus conflicts with the central premise of the right to marry. Without the recognition, stability, and predictability marriage offers, their children suffer the stigma of knowing their families are somehow lesser. They also suffer the significant material costs of being raised by unmarried parents, relegated through no fault of their own to a more difficult and uncertain family life. The marriage laws at issue here thus harm and humiliate the children of same-sex couples. That is not to say that the right to marry is less meaningful for those who do not or cannot have children. An ability, desire, or promise to procreate is not and has not been a prerequisite for a valid marriage in any state. In light of the precedent protecting the right of married couple not to procreate, it cannot be said the court or the state have conditioned the right to marry on the capacity or commitment to procreate. The constitutional marriage right has many aspects, of which childbearing is only one. Fourth and finally, this court's cases in the nation's traditions make it clear that marriage is a keystone of our social order. Alexis de Tocqueville recognized this truth on his travels to the United States almost two centuries ago. There is certainly no country in the world where the tie of marriage is so much respected as in America. When the American retires from the turmoil of public life to the bosom of his family, he finds in it the image of order and of peace. He afterwards carries that image with him into public affairs. In Monnevry Hill, the court echoed de Tocqueville, explaining that marriage is the foundation of the family and of society, without which there would be neither civilization nor progress. Marriage, the Maynard court said, has long been a great public institution giving character to our whole civil polity. This idea has been reiterated even as an institution has evolved in substantial ways over time. Superseding rules related to parental consent, gender, and race once thought by many to be essential. Marriage remains a building block of our national community. For that reason, just as couples vow to support each other, so does society pledge to support the couple, offering symbolic recognition and material benefits to protect and nourish the union. Indeed, while the states are in general free to vary the benefits they conferred on all married couples, they throughout our history made marriage the basis for expanding a list of governmental rights, benefits, and responsibilities. These aspects of marital status include taxation, inheritance and property rights, rules of interstate succession, spousal privilege in the law of evidence, hospital access, medical decision-making authority, adoption rights, the rights and benefits of survivors, birth and death certificates, professional ethics rules, campaign finance restrictions, workers' compensation benefits, health insurance, and child custody, support, and visitation rules. Valid marriage under state law is also a significant status for over a thousand provisions of federal law. The states have contributed to the fundamental character of the marriage right by placing that institution at the center of so many facets of the legal and social order. There is no difference between same and opposite-sex couples with respect to this principle. Yet, by virtue of their exclusion from that institution, same-sex couples are denied the constellation of benefits that states have linked to marriage. This harm results in more than just material burdens. Same-sex couples are consigned to an instability many opposite-sex couples would deem intolerable in their own lives. As the state itself makes marriage all the more precious by the significance it attaches to it, exclusion from this status has the effect of teaching gays and lesbians are unequal in important respects. It demeans gays and lesbians for the state to lock them out of a central institution of the nation's society. Same-sex couples too may aspire to transcendent purposes of marriage and seek fulfillment in its highest means.
The limitation of marriage to opposite-sex couples may long have seemed natural and just, but its inconsistency with the central meaning of the fundamental right to marry is now manifest. With that knowledge must come the recognition that laws excluding same-sex couples from the marriage right impose stigma and injury of the kind prohibited by our basic charter. Objecting that this does not reflect the appropriate framing of the issue, the respondents refer to Washington v. Glucksburg, which call for a careful description of fundamental rights. They assert that petitioners do not seek to exercise the right to marry, but rather a new and non-existent right to same-sex marriage. Glucksburg did insist that liberty under the due process clause must be defined in a most circumscribed manner, with central reference to specific historical practices. Yet, while that approach may have been appropriate for the asserted right there involved, physician-assisted suicide, it is inconsistent with the approach this court has used in discussing other fundamental rights, including marriage and intimacy. Loving did not ask about a right to interracial marriage. Turner did not ask about a right of inmates to marry. And Zimblocki did not ask about a right of fathers with unpaid child support duties to marry. Rather, each of these cases inquired about the right to marry in its comprehensive sense, asking if there was a sufficient justification for excluding the relevant class from the right. That principle applies here. If rights were defined by who exercised them in the past, then received practices could serve as their own continued justification and new groups could not invoke rights once denied. This court has rejected that approach, both with respect to the right to marry and the rights of gays and lesbians. The right to marry is fundamental as a matter of history and tradition, but rights come not from ancient sources alone. They arise, too, from a better informed understanding of how constitutional imperatives define a liberty that remains urgent in our own era. Many who deem same-sex marriage to be wrong reach that conclusion based on decent and honourable religious or philosophical premises, and neither they nor their beliefs are disparaged here. But when that sincere, personal opposition becomes an enacted law and policy, the necessary consequence is to put imperator of the state itself on an exclusion that soon demeans or stigmatises those whose own liberty is then denied. Under the Constitution, same-sex couples seek in marriage the same legal treatment as opposite-sex couples, and it would disparage their choices and diminish their personhood to deny them this right. The right of same-sex couples to marry that is part of the liberty promised by the 14th Amendment is derived, too, from that amendment's guarantee of the equal protection of the laws. The Due Process Clause and the Equal Rights Clause are connected in a profound way, though they are independent principles. Rights implicit in liberty and rights secured by equal protection may rest on different precepts and are not always coextensive. yet in some instances each may be instructed as to the meaning and reach of the other. In any particular case, one clause may be thought to capture the essence of the right in a more accurate and comprehensive way, even as the two clauses may converge in the identification and definition of the right. This interrelation of the two principles furthers our understanding of what freedom is and must become. The court's cases touching upon the right to marry reflect this dynamic. In Loving, the court invalidated a prohibition on interracial marriage under both the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. The court first declared that the prohibition invalid because of its unequal treatment of interracial couples. It stated, There can be no doubt that restricting the freedom to marry solely because of racial classifications violates the central meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. With this link to equal protection, the court proceeded to hold that prohibition offended the central precepts of liberty. To deny this fundamental freedom on so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in these statutes, Classification so directly subversive of the principle of equality at the heart of the 14th Amendment is surely to deprive all the state citizens of liberty without due process of law. The reasons why marriage is a fundamental right became more clear and compelling from their full awareness and understanding of the hurt that resulted from laws barring interracial unions. The synergy between the two protections is illustrated further in Zablocki. There, the court invoked the Equal Protection Clause as its basis for invalidating the challenge law, which, as already noted, barred fathers who were behind on their child support payments from marrying without judicial approval. The equal protection analysis depended in central part on the court's holding that the law burned a right of fundamental importance. 
It was the essential nature of the marriage right discussed at length in Zablaki that made apparent the law's incompatibility with the requirements of equality. Each concept, liberty and equal protection, leads to a stronger understanding of the other. Indeed, in interpreting the Equal Protection Clause, the Court has recognized that new insights and societal understandings can reveal unjustified inequality within our most fundamental institutions that once passed unnoticed and unchallenged. To take but one period, this occurred with respect to marriage in the 1970s and the 1980s, notwithstanding the gradual erosion of the doctrine of coverture, invidious sex-based classifications in marriage remained common through the mid-20th century. These classifications denied the equal dignity of men and women. One state's law, for example, provided in 1971 that the husband is the head of the family and the wife is subject to him. Her legal civil existence is merged in the husband, except so far as the law recognizes her separately, either for her own protection or for her benefit. Responding to a new awareness, the court invoked equal protection principles to invalidate laws imposing sex-based inequality on marriage. Like Loving and Zablocki, these precedents show that the Equal Protection Clause can help to identify and correct inequalities in the institution of marriage, vindicating precepts of liberty and equality under the Constitution. Other cases confirm this relation between liberty and equality. In MLB v. CLJ, the court invalidated under due process and equal protection principles a statute requiring indigent mothers to pay a fee in order to appeal the termination of their parental rights. In Eisenstadt v. Bard, the court invoked both principles to invalidate a prohibition on the distribution of contraceptives to unmarried persons but not married persons, and in Skinner v. Oklahoma, ex Roe Williamson, the court invalidated under both principles a law that allowed sterilization of habitual criminals. In Lawrence, the court acknowledged the interlocking nature of these constitutional safeguards in the context of legal treatment of gays and lesbians. Although Lawrence elaborated its holding under the Due Process Clause, it acknowledged and sought to remedy the continuing inequality that resulted from laws making intimacy in the lives of gays and lesbians a crime against the state. Lawrence therefore drew upon the principles of liberty and equality to define and protect the rights of gays and lesbians, holding the state cannot deem their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. This dynamic also applies to same-sex marriage. It is now clear that the challenged laws burden the liberty of same-sex couples, and it must further be acknowledged that they abridge central precepts of equality. Here, the marriage laws enforced by the respondents are in essence unequal. Same-sex couples are denied all the benefits afforded to opposite-sex couples and barred from exercising a fundamental right, especially against a long history of disapproval of their relationships. This denial to same-sex couples of the right to marry works a grave and continuing harm. The imposition of this disability on gays and lesbians serves to disrespect and subordinate them, and the Equal Protection Clause, like the Due Process Clause, prohibits this unjustified infringement of the fundamental right to marry. These considerations led to the conclusion that the right to marry is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person, and under the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, couples of the same sex may not be deprived of that right and that liberty. The court now holds that same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry. No longer may this liberty be denied to them. Baker v. Nelson must be, and now is overruled and the state laws challenged by petitioners in these cases are now held invalid to the extent they exclude same-sex couples from civil marriage on the same terms and conditions as opposite-sex couples. There may be initial inclination in these cases to proceed with caution to await further legislation, litigation, and debate. The respondents warn there has been insufficient democratic disclosure before deciding an issue so basic as the definition of marriage. In its ruling on the cases now before this court, the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals made a cogent argument that it would be appropriate for the respondent states to await further public discussion and political measures before licensing same-sex marriages. Yet, there has been far more deliberation than this argument acknowledges. There has been referenda, legislative debates, and grassroots campaigns, as well as countless studies, papers, books, and other popular and scholarly writings. There has been extensive litigation in state and federal courts. 
Judicial opinions addressing the issue have been informed by the contentions of parties and counsel, which, in turn, reflect the more general societal discussion of same-sex marriage and its meaning that has occurred over the past decades. As more than 100 amici make clear in their filings, many of the central institutions in American life, state, and local governments, the military, large and small businesses, labor unions, religious organizations, law enforcement, civic groups, professional organizations, and universities have devoted substantial attention to the question. This has led to an enhanced understanding of the issue and the understanding reflected in the arguments now presented for resolution as a matter of constitutional law. Of course, the Constitution contemplates that democracy is the appropriate process for change, so long as that process does not abridge fundamental rights. Last term, a thorality of this court reaffirmed the importance of the democratic principle in Schwepp v. Baum, noting the right of citizens to debate so they can learn and decide and then, through political process, act in concert to try and shape the course of their own times. Indeed, it is often through democracy that liberty is preserved and protected in our own lives. But as Schrett also said, the freedom secured by the Constitution consists, in one of its essential dimensions, of the right of the individual not to be injured by unlawful exercise of governmental power. Thus, when the rights of persons are violated, the Constitution requires redress by the courts, notwithstanding the more general value of democratic decision-making. This holds true even when protecting individual rights affects issues of the utmost importance and sensitivity. The dynamic of our constitutional system is that individuals need not await legislative action before asserting a fundamental right. The nation's courts are open to injured individuals who come to them to vindicate their own direct, personal stake in our basic charter. An individual can invoke a right to constitutional protection when he or she has been harmed, even if the broader public disagrees and even if the legislator refuses to act. The idea of the Constitution was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy, to place them beyond the reaches of majorities and officials, and to establish them as legal principles to be applied in the courts. This is why fundamental rights may not be submitted to a vote. They depend on the outcome of no elections. It is of no moment whether advocates of same-sex marriage now enjoy or lack momentum in the democratic process. The issue before the court here is the legal question whether the Constitution protects the right of same-sex couples to marry. This is not the first time the court has been asked to adopt a cautious approach to recognizing and protecting fundamental rights. In Bowers, a bare majority upheld a law criminalizing same-sex intimacy. That approach may have been viewed as a cautious endorsement of the democratic process, which had only just begun to consider the rights of gays and lesbians. Yet, in effect, Bowers upheld state action that denied gays and lesbians a fundamental right and caused them pain and humiliation. As evidenced by the dissents in that case, the facts and the principles necessary to correct a holding were known to the Bowers court. That is why Lawrence held Bowers was not correct when it was decided. Although Bowers was eventually repudiated in Lawrence, men and women were harmed in the interim, and the substantial effects of these injuries no doubt lingered long after Bowers was overruled. Dignity wounds cannot always be healed with the stroke of a pen. A ruling against same-sex couples would have the same effect and, like Bowers, would be unjustified under the 14th Amendment. The petitioner's stories make clear the urgency of the issue they present to the court. James of Burgerfell now asks whether Ohio can erase his marriage to John Arthur for all time. April DeBoer and Janie Rouse now ask whether Michigan may continue to deny them the certainty and stability all mothers desire to protect their children. Isidou and Thomas Kostura now ask whether Tennessee can deny to one who has served this nation the basic dignity of recognizing his New York marriage. Properly presented with the petitioner's cases, the court has a duty to address these claims and answer these questions. Indeed, faced with a disagreement among the courts of appeals, a disagreement that caused impermissible geographic variation in the meaning of federal law, the court granted review to determine whether same-sex couples may exercise the right to marry. Were the court to uphold the challenged laws as constitutional, it would teach the nation that these laws are in accord with our society's most basic compact. 
for the court to stay its hand to allow slower case-by-case -case determination of the required availability of specific public benefits to same-sex couples. It still would deny gays and lesbians many rights and responsibilities intertwined with marriage. The respondents also argue allowing same-sex couples to wed will harm marriage as an institution by leading to fewer opposite-sex marriages. This may occur, the respondents contend, because licensing same-sex marriage severs the connection between natural procreation and marriage. That argument, however, rests on the counterintuitive view of opposite-sex couples' decision-making processes regarding marriage and parenthood. Decisions about whether to marry and raise children are based on many personal, romantic, and practical considerations and it is unrealistic to conclude that an opposite-sex couple would choose not to marry simply because same-sex couples may do so. The respondents have not shown a foundation for the conclusion that allowing same-sex marriage will cause harmful outcomes they describe. Indeed, with respect to this asserted basis for excluding same-sex couples from the right to marry, it is appropriate to observe that these cases involve only the rights of two consenting adults whose marriages would pose no risk to themselves or third parties. Finally, it must be emphasized that religions and those who adhere to religious doctrines may continue to advocate with utmost sincere conviction that, by divine precepts, same-sex marriage should not be condoned. The First Amendment ensures that religious organizations and persons are given proper protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling and so central to their lives and their faiths, and to their own deep aspirations to continue the family structure they have long revered. The same is true of those who oppose same-sex marriage for other reasons. In turn, those who believe allowing same-sex marriage is proper or indeed essential, whether as a matter of religious conviction or secular belief, may engage those who disagree with their view in an open and searching debate. The Constitution, however, does not permit the state to bar same-sex couples from marriage on the same terms as accorded to couples of the opposite sex. These cases also present the question whether the Constitution requires states to recognize same-sex marriage as validly performed out of state. As made clear by the case of Aguilar and Author, and by that of Ducot and Castora, recognition bans inflict substantial and continuing harm on same-sex couples. Being married in one state but having that valid marriage denied in another is one of the most perplexing and distressing complications in the law of domestic relations. Leaving the current state of affairs in place would maintain and promote instability and uncertainty. For some couples, even an ordinary drive into a neighboring state to visit family or friends risks causing severe hardship in the event of the spouse's hospitalization while across state lines. In light of the fact that many states already allow same-sex marriage and hundreds of thousands of these marriages already have occurred, the disruption caused by the recognition bans is significant and ever-growing. As counsel for the respondents acknowledge that argument, if states are required by the Constitution to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, the justifications for refusing to recognize those marriages performed elsewhere are undermined. The court, in its decision, holds same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry in all states. It follows that the court also must hold, and it now does hold, that there is no lawful basis for a state to refuse to recognize a lawful same-sex marriage performed in another state on the ground of its same-sex character. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in this case demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness. Excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions, they ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. Thank you for listening to the inaugural edition of SCOTUS Speaks. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email us at scotuspeaks at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.